Hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to an episode of Passing Dimes. This is a great guest. We've been chasing him a little bit. He's kind of been on our, our short list of people that when we started the show, we really wanted to talk to. So this athlete started playing for Team Canada when he was 14 years old. He won the world title in 2006. He's been on the city national team since he was 17 years old. He's got four Parapan medals to his name. Growing up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, he is the captain of our city national team. Please welcome to the show, Doug Leroy. Thanks, uh... Yeah, thanks for doing this. So why don't we just cover the summer with you guys coming off another Parapan medal. Kind of give us a glimpse of when does the squad come together? Where are all you guys from? Like where is home base when you guys start training together? And, and how early does it start to kind of prepare for multi-sport games of that level? Uh, yeah, so kind of general general training, I guess, starts. Um, we try to get together roughly once a month. Uh, everyone's based all over the country. Uh, so we're not a centralized program, so that's kind of one of our big struggles. Uh, so we try to get together kind of for that one weekend over a month. It's typically kind of a four-day training camp and where you're playing, you know, four or five times, kind of six times over a weekend. Uh, and then everyone flies home and you kind of do your own thing. Uh, leading into kind of bigger games and stuff like that, it, for us this summer, uh, we had a training uh, it's kind of one exhibition series against the U.S. where we went down kind of a couple months before, uh, played like a five-game exhibition series with the U.S., uh, which was good training. And then from there, we kind of did our kind of one-month training camps leading up, and then did you know a quick staging camp right before. And how many how many players are you guys carrying? And just you don't have to list everybody, but are you? Is it mostly, like, is it West Coast guys? Is it Ontario and Alberta guys? Like, where is everybody coming from for this? Uh, we're pretty spread out now. We used to have a really strong Alberta base. Uh, had some turnover in our team now in the last couple of years, and now we're pretty evenly spread out. I think there's kind of three of us from Alberta, uh, three guys from Manitoba, and then um, maybe three or four from Ontario. So we've got a, kind of a good spread out group and when you say you have like a training camp where you guys get together because everybody's spread out does that move around the country or is it kind of based on where the coach and the majority of the people are and that's where you meet and train all right uh we used to train out of or we have been training out of edmonton uh we had a deal with the city there before i think it's kind of they've moved on now and uh we've kind of continued to kind of train there uh our coaches and stuff used to be Alberta base, like we used to have a strong Alberta base there, um, and so for us, it just kind of made sense to keep keep that going when you're flying people and you want to kind of move as few people as possible. Nice. Um, so where, excuse me, you may have mentioned this. Where was the camp this year before the multi-sport games? Uh, so we held a couple of them in Edmonton. Okay, and then, and then we had we had done like an exhibition series with the U.S. that was down in um, was it Columbus in hard with like the u.s open there yeah we were able to uh we sent friend of the show alex poldman he was able to get a quick video of you guys that we were able to post so uh is that an annual thing that you guys go down to u.s championships and they always have their sitting team kind of housed there or how often do you get to train with the u.s or maybe some other countries yeah so the the u.s team is someone we train with often obviously they're they're kind of the closest to us us we have been i think for the past maybe like four years five years have been going down to the u.s open uh they their program themselves runs 
kind of an open tournament afterwards uh, where they get, you know, other able-bodied players and stuff to come join in and they kind of split up their national teams and run kind of a sitting tournament within the U.S. Open. And so we've kind of been leading that in kind of we'll go play an exhibition series with them and then they can do that after. Nice. And, and looking around at some of the other countries you guys compete against, um, is it fair to say that every national federation has the same challenges? Like, are the states guys from all over and they don't really have uh, a full-time training center? They kind of use the training camp model as well? Uh, yes, yes and no. Um, they have some guys who are kind of from all over. They do have uh, a centralized location in Oklahoma that they train out of. Uh, their men's and women's team kind of, I think, work there together uh, where they train. I think I think it's almost every day. Like, they kind of go, like, five days a week six days a week there and then um, they also do kind of a training camp model along with that where the guys from out of town can fly in and do their training camp then fly back home. So the, the big thing this summer obviously was Parapan American Games. You've been to four now and you've meddled at every one. Uh, does the mood around a multi-sport games change compared to saying just exhibition with the states or because they're such a high-level team and you're such a high-level team. Like, Do you get a good game every time you guys play, or does everything kind of get ramped up when it is uh, a really big marquee competition like that? Yeah, so I think, I think for sure um, when it's a marquee competition, there's a definite ramp-up. Um, when you're just trying to kind of, you know, there's kind of ebbs and flows through the season um, where sometimes you may be playing guys kind of in more of the off-season, so it's not as, like, typically the games are still pretty good, but oftentimes it's, you know, you're kind of coming back, no one's played for a while, so it can be a little scrappy. Um, leading into more games, like, you play more often, and so everyone just kind of execution picks up. And take, take us through the lead-up to the games. Like, when do you guys arrive? How many team sessions do you have before the competition starts? And then you wouldn't mind just kind of walking us through, like, pool playing in the playoffs, like, your, your successful run of leaving with another medal. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think we we staged in Toronto this year. Uh, I think we were there for three or four days um, where we're doing, you know, a couple practices a day. Um, just training amongst ourselves, kind of getting back into it. And then I think we flew down to, flew down to Lima. And I think we had, you know, kind of maybe three days to kind of get settled in the village, learn where everything is go to your training venue, go to your competition venue, kind of figure out how all the transport's working, everything like that. Um, and then you kind of get get into the games. Um, this this one in particular was, was different than some of the other ones. Uh, our schedule was not ideal, I'd say. Um, it was pretty, pretty condensed. Um, you know, where we're playing, I think we played two games the first day, two games the second day and then we had another game on the third and that was kind of our round robin uh the second day i believe we played at 9 a.m and 9 p.m wow so there's a 12 hour split so that's basically as bad as you can get uh so i think that day you know we were up at 5 a.m got back to the village quickly in between uh to kind of eat and then go back and then we didn't get back till 2 a.m so you know really really long day challenging for recovery, things like that. And kind of going through pool play, um, 
who are some of the, the in, in your opinion, some of the top federations right now that you kind of play and have kind of developed a rivalry with, or you know that you're going to be tested early on in the tournament? Uh, yeah, so for, for this Pan Ams, um, you know, some of, some of the teams we don't see super often, uh, your typical ones, it's like the U.S. we see a lot, we're very familiar with them, you know they're going to be good. Uh, Brazil has been a powerhouse for you know, a number of years. <clears throat> they had some turnover in their team, um, but last summer they came third at Worlds, so you know they're they're a very strong team. Uh, and then some of the, some of the other teams aren't as strong. Like you know, some of them are up and coming programs where they're they're just kind of getting started, and uh, you know they may may not have the strongest teams right now, but they're kind of building, and every time we see them, they're getting better. Uh, and then, so probably the other strong team, the team we ended up playing for the bronze medal was Columbia. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a team we don't see very often. And I think they kind of struggles with similar things that we do where they just kind of don't play enough, but, but, you know, they're, they're also a very solid team. Nice. Nice. So with a guy like you, who's been around for four cycles, um, how is the Canadian program developing in your opinion over the, that year? Like is... You mentioned there's some turnover, like new guys come in, new guys go out, the coaching staff changes every once in a while. But overall, as far as the game, like, would you say we're pretty world leading? Obviously, like four medals in a row makes us makes us up there, right? Like our teams, uh, when they see Canada on the schedules, it's starting to be like, man, we we know we're in for a fight. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's getting there. I think that's a goal of our program, um, kind of, you know, getting four bronze medals in our in our zone where we're certainly up there. Um, Internationally, I think right now, I think we're ranked about 16th. That the rankings haven't been updated for a little bit, but so I'm not exactly sure if that's where we're at. But um, you know, I, th- I think it's getting there. Um, like I said, we've we've had some turnovers, some new guys have come in, and hopefully, that's going to kind of we're going to build and be able to do that. Um, kind of moving forward, uh, you know, at Pan Ends in the summer, like I mentioned, Brazil's number three in the world. You know, we had a pretty close four set match with them I think the first three sets were within two points so you know that's that's a real positive game for our program overall and hopefully we can build kind of on that moving forward yeah um fill in not only myself but our listeners as well what is going to be the qualification process for 2020 like what is your your next competition and how do we kind of earn a spot to those games yeah so 2020 uh so basically I believe it's two spots where earned uh, last summer at World Championships, and then it goes to each zone after that. So Pan Am's was our zonal for that. So the winner of Brazil qualified out of uh, Lima, Peru there. Um, we just found out coming up in March there will be a last chance qualifier tournament. So it's kind of one spot up, excuse me, one spot up for grabs and kind of winner, winner take all. And that last chance qualifier, that doesn't just include like Norseka or like our, our continent area. That, that'll be up for grabs with anyone who hasn't qualified yet, right? Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So can you kind of that's list correct. some countries uh, that so, uh, will be attending that one? Yeah, so off the top of my head, um, we aren't sure exactly who, but um, I assume all the kind of top remaining teams will show up. Uh, so it's maybe like Ukraine, Germany, uh, USA. Those teams are all top 10 ranked in the world. Uh, maybe Kazakhstan, I think they might be in the top 10 as well. So that's four top 10 teams. And then 
whoever else kind of probably in that 10 to 16 zone is going to fill up that tournament. So uh, should be should be a doozy. Yeah, so do you guys have an opportunity to, to maybe play the States again before March because you're both going to be in this competition? Or how would you guys prepare for that, knowing that you may not want to train with another country because they're in the same boat as you. As soon as like you guys start battling, you're kind of sharpening each other, right? Which could be a benefit or it could be you know helping the other guy too. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what our um, training schedule is going to look like moving in to that tournament. Uh, I think it was last week that we found out when it's exactly going on. Uh, it was kind of up in the air. It was kind of just just been kind of whispered about almost where it's like it's coming up, but we aren't sure when or who's hosting. So now that we got word on that, um, we're just waiting here on our training schedule. I assume we'd probably you know do some monthly training camps between ourselves and then probably look at playing the states even though that's going to be like main rival like just makes sense kind of cost wise nice so let's kind of take just a deeper dive into the sport so as mentioned you've been around the sitting team for for four cycles or, or maybe just over now um in your mind has the game evolved in any way like if anyone's ever seen video or if they they haven't we'll share some links but the game is is crazy fast when it's played at a high level like great skill um, guys have to be able to play multiple positions. Like it looks like several guys on the court have to be able to set, even though you play a system. Like, how's the game kind of evolving, and what do you really enjoy about playing at this level? Uh, yeah. So, so what you mentioned, like the, the the speed, speed's picked up big time over the time I've been around. Uh, when I first started, you know, guys are setting high kind of rainbow sets to the outside, and because you're not jumping, there's no there's no time differentials, so you're you're a limit little bit more limited in what you can run offensively so when you're giving guys time you know you have two firm set blocks kind of in front of you um, for people who haven't seen it it's played on a smaller court the courts 10 meters long by six meters wide so it's roughly badminton court sized you have six guys in there so there's a lot of space to cover but there's not a lot of space if that makes sense like when you're attacking and stuff there's not a lot of space to go around people so um, Back then, I'd say it was a lot more kind of error management. You know, if there's two far blocks, it's like, hey, well, you can't hit into that, so you got to work around it. Um, and I think as the game's kind of grown and the speed's picked up, it's opening up more shots, so you're seeing more kills. Um, guys are figuring out ways to kind of create that space along the net. If that means, you know, kind of going forwards and sliding sideways, almost like a you know, they kind of do it in the indoor game too, where middles will approach one way and just jump sideways into a seam and put it down and just like standing on, sitting, sliding on your butt. It's, it's a skill to be able to do that. Definitely, definitely. Um, maybe you could just fill in a, a couple rules. So I guess the big one would be you need to have contact with the ground when you're when you're playing the ball. And the other one being you can block serve. That's true, right? Yes. And then beyond that, everything else is just traditional indoor volleyball moves, right? Yeah, so the rules are the same. Um, like you mentioned, when uh, when you play the ball, you have to have part of your torso or butt in contact with the ground. Um, there is kind of a workaround rule to that. If you're making a defensive play on the ball in the backcourt, they allow you to kind of pop off your butt a little bit. Uh, it's more so when you're kind of rolling forward over your knees. They kind of allow that. Um, it's a bit of a judgment call on, on the rest part, but it's potentially allowed. And and then yes, like you mentioned, uh, you're allowed to block or attack the serve. 
so I, I don't know if you've done this, but uh, Volleyball Canada has done a good job that in the developmental uh, coaching stream, they've added sitting volleyball to the actual course now. So everybody who attends one of those gets to kind of watch some video, try it out a little bit. And, and me being an LF here in Ontario, I haven't met somebody who doesn't enjoy playing sitting. Like, I think it's, it's a ton of fun. Once people try it, they realize how difficult it really is. But like you mentioned, the speed of the game and, and kind of that it is still volleyball. I, I've noticed that a lot of people are, are really starting to enjoy it. Um, is there anything in your mind that either Volleyball Canada or maybe some of the provinces can do to kind of really start growing the game a little bit more? Uh, yeah, you know, I think since, since I started back before, it's like you, you tell someone what you're doing. And like, I'll be the first to admit when I first saw it and kind of first switched over. Um, the first time I'd heard about it was the, like the year before. Um, we're at a world championships for, for standing volleyball and it just happened to be on kind of the other side of the gym from us where they were running it kind of a, in the same venue. Um, you know, and then you tell people you're playing and no one knows what it is. And, and so now generally when I talk to someone, at least in the volleyball community, like most people have kind of heard about it, seen it since something like that. So I think, I think it's getting there. It's a slow process. Um, I think it helps for sure. Like you said, you're giving it to coaches. Uh, coaches potentially show, you know, their athletes, and that's probably the best way to, to reach and spread the word. Now, when you played uh, at Pan Am Games here in Toronto, was there a big Canadian following? Did, like, a lot of people get exposed to the high level of the sport there? Like, how were the crowds uh, at those games? Yeah, the, crowd, the crowds were awesome. Uh, I'm not sure how many people the venue actually held. Uh, this is at T-Pass there. Um, had to be, you know, potentially like a couple thousand from the stands and like the stands for all of our matches were, were packed. So, um, definitely felt the home support there. Nice. So just to kind of wrap this up on, on your, your season. So we're in the hunt to qualify for 2020. You mentioned that it's kind of off season, but are you still being active? Like, do you have a weightlifting program? Do you have, uh, a, maybe your own kind of training group that you can still get some touches on the ball or what is, what is everybody kind of responsible for away from the team to make sure that when March rolls around, it's not just one training camp and go that you guys are still kind of entering training camp at a, a decent level. Yeah. So um, it kind of falls to each individual guy. Um, for me here in Calgary, I have one other teammate in the city with me. So we actually, like we got on court last week, you know, just got some touches back and forth. Um, generally try to get like CIS guys out. Uh, obviously it's in season for them so that won't happen but typically in summertime we're able to pull pull a couple of them and you can usually get you know at least some three on three four and four style stuff going. Uh, that's super helpful to us. Uh, you know just to have other big bodies out uh, there. Weight training wise again it's kind of everyone's kind of on their own for it. Uh, the expectation is that you're doing it and have, you know, a weightlifting program to follow. Uh, I think previously we had, we had a strength coach and it just, it didn't kind of work with everyone spread out over the country. Like they can't see what everyone's doing. You know, um, everyone has different potential abilities depending on, you know, your level of disability or impairment or what you have going on, right? Like someone who's a leg amputee isn't going to be doing potentially the same stuff as someone who's an arm amputee things like that so um, again it's following kind of to your individual selves and we, we kind of keep each other updated on what everyone's doing on a weekly basis 
Nice. And with you being a vet on the team, is there a lot of internal leadership or opportunity that? Because uh, there's a pretty big age gap as far as like a, a high level sports team, right? Like what kind of what is the age gap with the squad right now? Uh, I think our youngest guy right now turned 19 last week. And then our oldest guys now are, <clears throat> I think we got two guys who are 37. So that's, I guess, in a more reasonable range. Um, you know, within, if you go back even like two years, like we had, we had a couple guys who were pushing, you know, 50 years old. Nice. So, <laughs> so like when you start getting up there, you know, that's, that's quite the, the range when you have a 50 year old man, you know, competing potentially with an 18 year old, you know, like you said, I started when I was 14. So, you know, you can get teenagers all the way up to 50. And what is the recruitment process or if hopefully our listeners can help spread the word. And if somebody's interested in kind of giving it a go and, and trying out, um, maybe what was your recruitment story? And then what could, what advice would you pass on to somebody else who wants to, you know, give it a shot and play this, this sport at a really high level? Yeah. So um, growing up, I was playing club volleyball out of Edmonton at NABC. I was just at a, I think it was maybe like the Western open kind of deal, like our Western championships. And, just someone who was involved with the disabled program at that time saw me and kind of reached out and said, you know, come, come try it, whatever. And that time it was standing volleyball. So that's how I got involved with the program. And then uh, in 2007, when it switched to sitting, um, they just kind of asked us, they were like, hey guys, like, are any of you interested in potentially swapping over? And it was more of like a funding change kind of from, from the standing stream over to the sitting stream. And, so maybe like half our team from the old standing team kind of switched over to sitting and was like, all right, we'll give this, we'll give this a go. Yeah. I think for, for people who are looking to get involved or, or don't know if they kind of classify, you know, there's a wide range of classifications. Um, you know, it can be anything from, you know, amputees to, you know, cerebral palsy. It can be a fused ankle, things like that. You, you know, you blew your ACL out, don't have an ACL, like that potentially classifies or it used to I'm not sure how it goes under the new rules they just kind of switch some stuff but if you're interested in playing then you should reach out to our program coordinator nicole ban and i've linked her email and stuff on the website uh, for volleyball canada perfect yeah we'll be sure to include that in the show notes so that's pretty cool that you got to represent canada as a 14 year old so kind of talk us through making the jump from high school and club volleyball to to international level what was it like putting on that team canada jersey for the first time yeah i mean pretty pretty cool um yeah like i said i started when i was 14 i think i trained just basically trained and went to training camps for two years and then kind of made my debut when i was 16. um yeah so you just kind of work your way up and then to get that opportunity to actually wear the flag on your chest and stuff is a pretty special feeling so to win a world title, uh, who was hosting that event? Uh, and just kind of describe the level, uh, and, and if there's anything that you feel our listeners need to know about kind of the inner rules of, of standing volleyball. Standing volleyball, um, kind of how it worked is you were given a point system for guys on the court. So there's like A, B, and C players. Um, typically, like a A player would be your least disabled. Um, you know, that's someone who's potentially like missing half a hand. Uh, you know, or anything like past your kind of wrist joint or like have a foot or it could be like minor cerebral palsy, um, stuff like that. Your B players, you're allowed 
uh, they made up kind of the majority of your team. That would be someone who's, you know, uh, arm amputee from below your elbow to above your wrist. And then C players were kind of your your most impaired, I guess. And that would be like an above knee amputee or someone, you know, who's missing like your arm above the elbow, um, stuff like that. So you had to have one C player on the court. You had as many Bs as you wanted and you're allowed one A on the court and two on your team. And we had talked before the show, uh, it sounds like Canada had a long running of success, right? Like you were on a, a world title team, but you mentioned that was a three-peat, I think, for Team Canada? Yeah, so I came in kind of near the end, um, and that was, yeah, the end of a three-peat, so that was 2006. Uh, they won in 2004 and 2005, I believe, as well. What would you credit to Canada's success at that level? Man, um, it's uh, tough to say. I guess it just more or less comes down to, you know, the athletes. <laughs> I guess they maybe just had the right guys at the right time. Um, you know, they we had a couple guys. You know, we had one guy, um, Neil Johnson. He played professionally over in Germany and, you know, able-bodied leagues. So that's kind of the level you're playing at. You know, we had lots of guys who played CIS, stuff like that. So uh, the level is really high. And I don't, I don't know... Uh, what's different kind of to attribute that success to, but maybe just right time, right place for kind of that group of guys. Nice. Nice. And you mentioned the change in 2007 that, you know, let's be honest, it probably came down to a, to a funding issue of why more countries, I think, are more accessible to play sitting, right? Did everybody kind of make the change or did that kind of cause a new cycle in the Canadian program where some people saw it was an opportunity to maybe retire from the standing team and not transfer? Or would you say the majority did come over to the sitting squad? Yeah, I think we had about half, half of us switched, you know, maybe just over half. Um, I would say the difference between standing and sitting standing was, you know, maybe more geared towards arm amputees. Uh, there's a lot more arm amputees, just like the jumping aspect makes more sense. Uh, sitting tends to lend itself more to leg amputees, just kind of balls at the angle of the core you're at come at your head all the time, so there's a lot more setting. Uh, stuff like that but yeah so roughly half our team switched over and then yeah we slowly slowly kind of built from there nice so just looking at your bio here obviously you had a chance to play in lima last year and then playing on home soil in toronto but you also got to play in rio was that just a volleyball crazy atmosphere no matter what style of volleyball it is like what was that experience like going to brazil and and earning a bronze medal there yeah it's pretty wild um so like you said we had uh we actually just switched over to sitting um, and they were like, we have a Pan Am Games coming up in, I think, maybe like six months. They are like, so sit down, learn how to play, and let us know what we're doing. <laughs> and they are like, then we're, we're going to go to Brazil and, and play. Uh, so it was, it was definitely interesting. Um, remember, yeah, it's just like, we have a training camp. It's like, sit down. And they are like, hey, like, start playing. And we're like, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> so we had, like, we didn't. All we had seen, like we had seen them the year before, kind of some guys playing on the other side of the gym from us, and we had one of the like main referees in sitting kind of come out during training session. He was kind of like, "When I'm refing, this is the technique I see guys use to kind of like plant their arm and swing it." So that's kind of how we learned. Like it was kind of a pretty shoddy operation. <laughs> if I'm being honest, kind of leading up. Uh, into it but yeah it's, it's pretty wild overall so what was that learning experience 
like getting to those games like would you guys either play an opponent or watch an opponent and kind of steal some tactics there or maybe not think of something like because it's not like at that time you could go online and watch a game right because nobody would really be sharing their video or maybe this is one of the first high level competitions right so like you said you're you're learning from a ref some people are just telling you it's, it's volleyball just sit down and play like how steep was the learning curve the kind of the first day you guys arrived yeah yeah it's, uh, it's interesting i don't i don't know if we had an opportunity to actually like play a full-on match before we got there um but yeah you go and uh atmosphere was crazy like you said it's brazil i think there was like four thousand five thousand people in the stands it was, wow. it was a packed house um pretty awesome atmosphere and yeah it's like there's back then the level wasn't quite where it's at now but like you said when you know when regular volleyball athletes transfer over all the skills are more or less transferable like it's all the same like you're still setting the ball you're still passing a ball it's just applying it while you're sitting down um, so we had we had the skills it was just kind of applying it and there were times, uh, you know, even after that tournament where, you know, we, we kind of train amongst ourselves. You go, okay, like a wipe shot, like we're going to practice, everyone's wiping everyone nonstop. And you're like, this is, this is it. Like, this is the money shot. You go play against like a good European team and everyone starts pulling their hands. You start throwing the ball out of back. <laughs> and you're like, kind of scratch your head. And you're like, well, that didn't work. Right? Like it's back to the drawing board. You're like, well, kind of there goes there goes the a plan like what are we doing now <laughs> so at that time was that the best way to learn the game was honestly just competing or was your coach able to kind of get some video and you guys would do some tactical sessions like what kind of went into an international competition for you guys as far as planning for the next opponent and kind of to make sure you guys were still improving over the course of the tournament yeah so i think i think we did get some video um obviously it was like everyone was coming in at the same point our coaches had come from you know the standing game and it's the game same same but different like, completely <laughs> different so it's like there's some stuff that's the same and there's some stuff where you're like this is going to be it and you kind of go to a competition you're like it's like it's not working at all so uh especially early on it was, it was tough tough that way where you, you train a long time and didn't necessarily get kind of the results on the other end or but we kind of didn't know any different right um video is not as successful as it, like back then as it is now you know leading into competitions obviously if we had video on people you'd watch it you do your normal video sessions that you do and try to pick up parts and stuff that you think is going to work and go in and try to execute your game plan if if somebody were to watch sitting for the first time and other than just be entertained is there any tactics you can kind of give away that somebody who really loves volleyball you can kind of give us a head start so we can understand versus just kind of watching the ball but go back and forth like is there any key like one-on-one battles or anything tactically a team's doing that we should be paying attention to to kind of get up to speed a little bit faster yeah so i guess one one major difference that a lot of teams do is we'll run a six up system versus six back uh just seems to kind of work better um although that could be changing as well uh, i think teams are getting better at kind of being able to create more space and apply more pressure, um, get more attacking speed. So like I said before, there's a lot more setting um, when we first started, and that's definitely decreasing as we kind of go along here. Like you, you got to be positionally sound. Kind of you don't you don't have time to 
to kind of react. You have to be in place with your arms down, like ready to go, right? Um, the net's three feet off the ground, so it only takes the ball a quarter of a second to hit the ground. Kind of tactically stuff, like I mentioned before. Um, there's no time differential, so running like a X ball doesn't work, right? Like the guy's still sitting in the same spot. Right, right. Um, so you're going to kind of run run things kind of offset to create that gapping. And it just kind of comes down to just like teams are just the skills going up, it's getting faster. And, and like you mentioned um, earlier, it just like everyone has to be able to set the ball into a position. Um, it, can, it can be challenging to kind of get under the ball and like slide on your butt. <laughs> so sometimes it just makes more sense for someone to for like one of your teammates to step in and set a ball versus having a setter, you know, like slide 15 feet and make a play. And with the, the blockers able to block serve, how much does that influence the serving tactics? Are you guys still bombing balls because it's men's volleyball and that's what we tend to do? Like what is maybe a, a typical serving strategy in the sitting game right now? Uh, yeah, it, it factors in a lot. Um, you'll get... Typically, teams will give you a couple of rotations where they only have two guys blocking. Uh, so that'll give you a seam kind of down one side. Uh, so if that's the case, you know, typically guys will kind of slide into that seam and you try to put some pace on it. Um, if there's three blocks up, three blocks is tough. Like, it is it. You're probably taking some pace off the ball and putting in a more tactical serve. Right. Um, and basically that blocks there and you kind of as a back row when you're passing you tell your block where you want them to move to, into your scene to kind of give you a better opportunity so you don't have to move as much when you're passing if that kind of makes sense yeah it just sounds like there's a lot of team communication and just kind of clarifying roles before the ball's in play to really know what's happening right because if somebody misses a scene call that that could result in an easy point right yeah, for sure. So typically if a guy's going back to serve, um, just like anyone, like guys serve from the same spots a lot. Um, every once in a while you get someone who sits down kind of on one side, you set up your block, and then right before or after they kind of blow the whistle to, for the serve to come in, they'll quickly slide to the other side of the court. So you have to be quick and be like, okay, everyone shift. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's more or less reliant on guys just knowing angles. So it's like if you're kind of blocking someone's left seam, you just more or less like stay blocking their left seam. Right. Sometimes guys will kind of line up and then you more or less just be like, hey man, like move half a foot to the right, get them in the position you want, which will hopefully funnel the ball to you. Nice. So hopefully we've, we've piqued the interest of a bunch of our listeners and they want to really start following the sitting volleyball team. Um, Obviously, Volleyball Canada has the website, and there's ways to follow you guys through there. Do you guys have your own, uh, maybe social media or Instagram? Seems everybody's all over that. So, is there a way to follow either you personally or the squad that anyone who we've piqued their interest can kind of learn more? Yeah, so our, our squad has uh, at Sitting Canucks uh, on Instagram. I think we have Facebook. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Nice. So we'll make sure to add that to the show notes. Uh, and we typically like to end every episode with just a unique story. So either something from uh, all the travel and international competitions you've been or, or just something that 
it was maybe a unique experience that you wouldn't have got to, to have without volleyball kind of being the, the surface level thing that happened. So anything you, you got for our audience to kind of end with a laugh that was kind of, wow, I'm a, I'm a national team player and I can't believe that this thing happened. Oh yeah. So uh, back in 2007, uh, we were in Cambodia for a world cup, um, kind of a unique, unique setting for that. Um, next to our hotel was a massage parlor. So we're, you know, kind of, you're out there training, playing every day. You're like, all right, let's go get massages. So maybe half of us go get a massage. You know, it costs, I think, $6 maybe for an hour. So you're like, unbelievable deal. Kind of go do it. Everything's good. Uh, like, yeah, that was, man, we should probably go again like tomorrow. So I think we all did the same thing, like go in, get a massage, kind of $6. Uh, might have got a different one this time, like walk out and kind of at, as we're getting our massage, they're really like working our calves. Like it, it literally felt like she might have been walking on them. I don't know. It's probably <laughs> just her thumbs. So we walk out of there, just back to the plane standing. And I think it was probably within a couple hours, like all of us are just like our calves are torched. <laughs> like just can't, can't walk up and down stairs. Like we're in the middle of the tournament. You're having to go jump basically the next day and we're all like man like boys like we might have been stuff six dollars for some much just like if we ruined our calves oh that'd be a tough one to explain to coach yeah i can't really play you know too many six dollar massages i can't i can't go today coach <laughs> yeah, yeah i think everyone had the rollers out everyone's stretching like a madman trying to trying to get their calves loosened up Oh man, was that one of your favorite venues to play in? Like you mentioned, you got a chance to go to Brazil. You guys have been in Mexico. You just went to Lima. Like um, it sounds like you guys are always in an interesting place to kind of play volleyball. Not only for the volleyball, but just to kind of maybe be a tourist after. That sounds like there's some unique places you guys get to go. Yeah, uh, I don't know if it was a favorite venue. It was an interesting one for sure. Uh, their Olympic Stadium was built in like 1964 or something. It's all a concrete. Um, and basically it was an open air stadium. So underneath the, the bleachers, there was holes going straight outside. Oh, no way. So we're, so we're playing afternoon matches and, uh, teams are picking sides to start because you just have like this sun blaring in. You can't see <laughs> anything on the one side of the court. There's like huge wind gusts. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um. I remember coaches telling us not to dive on the floor because an old concrete floor had some cracks in it and there was bats in the ceiling who were, you know, doing their business kind of everywhere. So they were like, don't dive in case you get a cut. Oh, no way. Like, didn't catch something. So uh, pretty, pretty interesting kind of wild venue to be hosting kind of a world cup at. I'm glad the standard has hopefully changed since then, but uh, you did yeah. get a unique story out of it, so that helps. And, and hopefully nobody, you know, got cut or came home with the disease or anything like that. Yeah, I think we, we all made it through unscathed, which is good. Nice. So we, we've taken up a lot of your time here. I want to thank you for coming on the show. We'll have to have you uh, on again so you can kind of cover leading into March and hopefully some people get behind you guys and, and we can qualify for 2020 and just kind of watch everything else you guys are up to. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time and learned a lot. Thank you. Special thanks to Doug Roy for joining the show. 
If this is your first Passing Dives episode, feel free to go back and check out our top episodes with TJ Sanders and Brandy Wilkinson. Or if you're getting fired up for the start of eSports, check out our previous episodes with Jesse Elser, Thomas Sora, Andy Koss, and Lauren Veltman. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of our bonus episodes like this one. Please leave us a comment or a five-star review, and remember, the nicest compliment you can give the show is by telling your friends. Stay excellent, and stay tuned for new episodes every Friday.